mixing it up a little bit. I was listening to you talk about the Starbucks card. He was down there saying, like, yeah, you give me the Starbucks card, but my wife will use it. <laughs> no, that's awesome. No, really, it'd be great if we could come alongside and help our ladies have a great conference. That'd be good? Yeah? No, shoot, no, heavens. Hey, listen, can I just say thank you so much for last week? Um, by the way, if you're new with us or the first time in a long time, welcome home. I'm glad you're here. My name is Pastor Lance, and I get the privilege of walking with you today. Amen. Hey, listen, this last weekend was tremendous. Those of you who were here, I'm telling you, there was a lot of people, a lot of no parking. It was awesome. I mean, there's just a lot of things going on. Can I just say personally, thank you so much for all of you who served. I think of all the Easter services that I've been a part of, I think this one had the most people serving than anyone I've ever been a part of. It's pretty amazing. So I'm really proud of the fact that you guys all did that. The thing I loved about it the most was is you got to be Jesus to people who may not have seen Jesus before because you hugged them, because you helped them park, because you showed them where their kids go, because you just said, hey, my name is. You just got to be Jesus in the middle of their, their Easter. So thanks for that. Pretty awesome. Amen. By the way, and if you were here last week and you made a decision to surrender your life to Christ, and maybe you raised your hand, maybe you didn't raise your hand, but you still have that wonder in your heart trying to figure out what you're supposed to do next, can I just tell you, I'm really glad you're with us. And if you have questions as to what your next step is supposed to look like, will you come talk to one of us, some of the folks that are wearing a blue tag, and just say, I mean, I think Lance was talking to me. I don't know what to do next. And we'll get you a Bible. We'll get you somebody to contact. We'll get somebody around you who can help you grow in your faith so that you're not alone. It's nothing worse than somebody who just comes to Christ and tries to figure it out all by themselves, right? This is not supposed to be like that. It's not how God made us. Well, if you were with us this last fall, you got to see what we call our annual theme for our church. We believe that God gives us, really oftentimes, he'll give us each year a theme for our church for the next 12 months. Over the past several years, you can see on the walls, actually, those are the themes for the last several years that we've had, but this particular year, we believe that the Lord was giving us a theme that was just two words. And the two words were simply this, make room. We feel like the Lord was really leading us to the point of making room. Now, does that mean make room with a seat next to you? Does that mean making room in your household? Does that mean making room in your schedule? Does that mean, mean making room in your finances? Does that mean, mean making room in your family? Yes, 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 yes. We believe, I believe that God's really calling us to creating space in our life for him to be him and for him to do what he wants to do. Because far too many of us just want to basically say, God, I want a relationship with you as long as you do it my way. Right? In other words, here's what we really say to God. God, I want all your blessings. All on my terms. Just give me all you got. My way. And I believe God is calling us to the place of saying, listen, he wants to give you all he's got. But he, in order to do that, sometimes he has to make room in our lives so that that can happen. Because sometimes we're just so full of, well, ourselves that there's no room for him. Hmm. This week I want to start a series. It's a four-week series entitled, I'm Not Enough. I'm not, actually it's I'm Not Blank Enough. <laughs> I put the blank there because I want you to, you know the words that go in there, don't you? You know the words that go on in your mind all the time. You don't even have to put the words up there because you know what it is. I'm not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not tall enough. I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not organized enough. I'm, you name it, right? I'm not financially secure enough. You name whatever the blank is, right? And you've heard that. You've heard it more than once. 
In fact, some of you have heard that several times even this morning. You know, when you saw that, right? When you first looked in the mirror and you thought, holy smokes, I'm certainly not enough. <laughs> you think to yourself, right? Because the first thing we hear is that, that voice that tells us we're not enough. And oftentimes we just jump right into believing that we're, well, not enough. I want to spend the next four weeks talking with you about making room in your life Not making room to do more stuff, but I really feel God's calling us to make room in our lives for him to define who we are. In other words, make room in your life for God to define who you are. To give us his identity of who he says we are. To make room in our lives to say, okay, God, I know this is what I've always believed about myself. I know this is the voice I always hear. This is the song I always sing. This is the way I always walk, but just for a period of time, and I'll just ask you this, just for, just for the next four weeks, decide in your hearts, I want to make room to allow God to show me who he said he was. Make room in your heart to say, God, you tell me who you say that I am. We're pretty quick to listen to the other voices, but what would happen if we deliberately made a choice to listen to his voice? Will you join me as we pray and start this, this series? God, thank you so much. Thank you so much that you have, um, you didn't just start the wheel of spinning in hopes that somehow we could figure it out. God, I'm so thankful that you love us enough to be able to say, listen, you are my son, you are my daughter, and you matter to me. Lord, I pray that as we embark on this journey of discovering who you say that we are, God, that we would be changed, Lord, that we would be transformed, that we could see what your your word says about us, and that we would be different because of it. We need you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So what are the results of our life when we don't allow God to define who we are? What is the result of our lives? What goes on in our lives when we don't allow God to define who we are? I think what we do is we end up becoming a, a, constant, a constant seeking missile at trying to figure out who we are. Because God made you that way. God, God made you to try to, God made you to know who you are. He made you that way. The problem is, is that because we don't take time tell, listening to what he says about us, we, we start listening to everything else. And we come up with questions like, we want to know um, the me who I pretend to be, the, the me who I think I should be, the me who other people think I should be, the me I'm afraid that God thinks I should be. It's exhausting. We just spend all of our time trying to figure out what I'm supposed to be, who I'm supposed to be, how I'm supposed to be it. And at the end of the day, we're just conflicted and we're just, and then end up, we we just make up stuff. And most of the time what we do is we just make up stuff by comparing ourselves to them. Because, you know, they got it going on. They got it figured out. Look at that happy, healthy, smiling family. Until you open their front door (laughs) and you realize, well, they're just like you. We spend all our time trying to compare ourselves or measure ourselves by some standard that's sub-standard of what it is that we should be looking at. We spend all of our time trying to look at who we are based on what it is that we see in someone else's life. Or what it is that maybe someone else told you you were supposed to be. Maybe when you were a child and your, your father or your mother said, you, 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 and just laid this load of expectations on you. And so you're constantly trying to live up to some measure just to get your head enough above the water enough to catch a breath. 
And you never feel like you're enough because you're always trying to get, you're always trying to get just, just enough, just enough, just enough. Because your dad said you always have to. Your mom says, this is what a great wife is. This is what a great mother is. This is what, and you're, you, you start thinking, I can't schedule myself. I don't cook. I don't clean. I don't do all the things that my mom does. And so I'll never measure up. And you just constantly feel under it. Your brother was a great student and you're not a great student. And everyone compares you, whether they say it or not, you think to yourself, they're always being compared. You get what I'm saying, right? Our identity just comes from everything could you imagine if we actually stopped just for long enough to, to acknowledge this truth? The king of all of the universe, <laughs> the, the, the God who put the stars in the sky and created the air that you and I breathe, the God, the, God, the, the king of the universe, he likes you just like you are. Could you imagine if we actually believe this stuff? I mean, he likes you just like you are. You don't got to do cartwheels. You don't have to do flips. You just got to be you. Could you imagine what would happen? You know, you'd, you'd find security, stability. You'd find peace. You'd find love. You'd find all those things, right? So what keeps us from that? What keeps us from the ability to receive what it is that the king of all, the creator of all, says about us? Hmm. What does the Bible say about who God says that we are? It says here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It says, For we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do good things that he planned for us long ago. Let me read that again. Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things that he planned for us to do long ago. You know, it's interesting. Most of us would say, yes. That's awesome. I guess I'm God's masterpiece. Some of us think we're just God's like weekend project. You know, some of us feel like we're just kind of like God's, you know, somewhat hobby. He says, you're my masterpiece. You're, you're purposed just like that. You know, some of us actually think, it says that you are God's masterpiece created in Christ to do good things, right? To do good works. Here's some of us think, some of us think, um, well, I know he created me in Christ to do good works, and I'm his masterpiece. What we think is, well, if I just, you know what, I can't certainly be his masterpiece because I know who I am. So here's what we think. If I just do a bunch of good things, if I do good works, then maybe he'll consider me his masterpiece. We get it all backwards. He says, you're already my masterpiece. You were created to, like, live this thing out. We turn it around backwards and think, how about I start living this thing out really good and you'll be happy enough to create me as your masterpiece. Man, we're confused. You are you and God made you you. Somebody say, what? <laughs> no, God made you you, right? God made you you. He made you like God. God made, listen to this. Okay, watch this. Clear as mud. I can watch your faces. This right here. That's an apple tree. I don't know if you knew that. It's an apple tree. Bought it last night. Walmart. Awesome. Right? It's an apple tree. I, love, I like apples. Do you like apples? But you know what my favorite fruit is? Oranges. I love oranges. I could knock back a... I love oranges. A whole case of them from Costco. I love oranges. They're amazing, right? Lots of sugar, but I love them. That's probably why I like them. But, but I'll tell you this, right? I love oranges. But here's the thing. I, I got an apple tree. 
Here's the funny thing about this apple tree. In and of itself, just like this, this apple tree will never produce an orange. It won't. I wish it would. I wish it would produce orange. In fact, if I put it, uh, maybe if I prayed really hard. Oh, produce an orange, produce an orange, make an orange, make an orange. Maybe I could pray hard enough that it would make an orange. Hmm, chances are fairly likely it's just going to produce apples. It's just going to produce apples. But what, what, if I, what if I took it and I put it into an orange orchard, if that's what they call them? An orange, with an orange field? What do they call them? Or orchard? Okay, orange grove. There you go. Nice. What if I put it in an orange grove, right? If I put it in an orange grove, this apple tree, and thought if I surround it around a bunch of orange trees, one, it might die because it's not the same environment, but two, I don't know, maybe it would just catch on and start growing oranges. See, see, I could cultivate it, I could water it, I could, I could pray over it, I could do everything I could. But this thing, you know what it's supposed to, you know what this thing is supposed to be? God's plan for this apple tree is to be the best version of itself ever. Amen. God's plan is this apple tree be the best version of itself. You know what this apple tree's job is not? It's not to make apples. I don't know if you realize that. Its job is not to make apples. See, we might think that this apple tree has a job. Its job is to make fruit. (laughs) You know know what this apple tree's only job is? To throw roots down deep. That's it. Just to grow roots. Amen. Its job is just to grow roots down into the healthy soil of God. And, and, and who it is that God created it to be to get the deepest nourishment, the deepest truth. That's all it's supposed to do is just grow roots. Amen. It's God's job to make the fruit. God makes the fruit. It's not his job to work up the fruit. It's just his job to grow roots. Can I tell you this? God created you to be you. In fact, I think God's plan for you is to be the best version of you. Someone say amen. See, what we think is God's plan is to make us the best version of someone else. We think God's plan is that, God, I get it. You got a really, you don't got a really good slate to work with here, God. You know, clearly you want to make me a new creation, translation. You want to make me something other than I am. What if God's plan was to make you as a new creation of you. Hmm. What if if you don't like you? You know, it's funny. There's a scripture, I think, in the Bible that we all believe more than any other scripture. Here's what it is. I think we actually walk it out better than any other scripture in the Bible. You know what it is? Love your neighbor as yourself. We're really good at that because we hate ourselves (laughs) and we stink at loving our neighbors. Really? Really? Love your neighbors yourself. We're like, all right. Don't like me, don't like them. See, what if you what if you were walking out what God created you to be and you became the best version of you? Then all glory to you? <laughs> no, man, all glory to God. God's job is to make the fruit, not you. God's job is to make fruit. The fruit grow off of you. It's not your job to make a fruit. It's your job to sink your roots down deep into Christ. As you sink your roots down deep into Christ, he transforms you and he grows fruit on you. Remember what we talked about a couple of weeks ago? He grows fruit on you. What kind of fruit? You know this tree can only grow one kind of fruit, right? 
in and of itself, and thus it can genetically alter the things. But I'll tell you right now, it, can only, it was only intended to grow one kind of fruit. You know what? You too. You're supposed to grow one kind of fruit. You know what that fruit is? Come on, all together. Love. Love that's patient, kind, not envious, not jealous. Love, right, that manifests itself all kind of ways. Gentle, kindness. That's how God intended you to grow fruit. God intended you to love. You know God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who created the stars in the sky, knows the sand on the seashore. That God, you know the God I'm talking about? Who owns everything. You know he doesn't own? (laughs) He doesn't possess you. You get to hold the cards on you. He doesn't own you until you give you to him. But when you do, he makes you a new you. The way you were intended to be. That make you a different you. He makes you a better you. Because God always likes you. See, the problem is, is you got to get over yourself thinking that I'm just a horrible, yucky, ugly, nothing. I can't do anything, but I wish I was like him. Because he's got it figured out. He's super spiritual. He, 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 she, whatever it is we come up with, right? Because they do it all right, and you clearly don't. What if God's plan for your life was to make you the best version of you because he actually likes you? What if he wants you to understand what he says about you so that you can be the best version of you? Because clearly the voices we're listening to aren't helping because we're listening to other voices talk to this, talk to us about who it says we are or who they say that we are. If you have your Bible, open it up to the book of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles. We'll get there in a minute. Second Chronicles 34. The best version of you, I believe, gives God the greatest glory through your life. The best version of you. I'm not talking about the glorification of yourself. I'm talking about God creating you in his image and you saying, okay, God, I want to be made in your image, the best version of who you say that I am. I think often about the, 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 the mommy who's the single mommy who stays at home and she's doing her best to raise her children and she's trying to teach them all the right things and say all the right things and do it all she can possibly do. But she has very little time to sit down alone and read her Bible. And when she finally sits down for a second to read her Bible, she falls asleep because she's exhausted. And then she comes to church and we say, you need to get up early and read your Bible, sister, because you're going to be super spiritual like everyone else. You need to do more. And so she walks away feeling guilty and defeated. And we say to the doctor who comes up every day and he's like, he, he like he, he's already feeling guilty because he never shows up to the monthly prayer meetings because I want to come to the prayer meetings, but I never can make time. Because, but every single day he's laying hands on the back of somebody and as they're telling him his ailment, he's quietly praying under his breath that God would bring healing to that person. What about the school teacher who, who, who always feels guilty about never being able to make the Bible study and always wanting to be there but never been able to do it? But every single day, she's living her life out in front of her students, showing them how to walk in obedience to what it is that they're learning. See, my fear is, is that we're trying to create a bunch of people. I think pastors, we've done a disservice to people because we've held up this crazy standard that says, you must do this, 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 and this, and then you'll be acceptable and approved by God as being super spiritual. But what if God made you to be you? And what if God said, now listen, don't get me wrong. Everyone better read their Bibles and pray and spend time with God doing what they're serving and giving and doing what you're supposed to do. The problem is, is we keep comparing ourselves to what, how other guys do it. And we say we're supposed to do it like him or like her. Don't misunderstand this message as some sort of a free ticket to do nothing. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying God created you to be you. 
God created you to be you. I can tell you this right now. In my own life, right, I'm a verbal processor. If you, I'll tell you what, if I've read my Bible that morning and I've gotten something out of it that morning, if you're anywhere near me, you're going to hear about it. Right, because I didn't, because the funny thing is, is you'll just hear about it. I don't care who you are. I'll just sit there and say, how are you doing today? Good, fine, thanks. Let me tell you what I learned. And I'll just start talking. I, it's, I'm, I'm sorry, it's just who I am. I, I, I don't know, journaling, you should see me write. I write like a monkey. I mean, it's horrible. I have to type. And if I type, some, sometimes if I read my Bible, I'm like, that was awesome. Where's my computer? I don't even have it or whatever. And I think, I just got to talk to somebody. I just gotta, I, I'll find some poor sap in a Starbucks and preach my message to him just so I can get it out. They're just like, stop. I just wanted to know if you want another cup of coffee. <laughs> you know, because I'm verbal, right? I, I, I process life differently. You might process life differently too. You might be super good at being quiet and alone and isolated. And you spend time away. And, and when the pastor stands up and says, you need to get away alone with Jesus for hours, you're just like, mm-hmm, that's me. And everyone else is like, yeah, you know, the, the other person who's like super outgoing and extroverted and all kinds of things he wants to do. And they're like, pastor says, get up and you ought to read your Bibles and four in the morning. And you're not a morning person. And the pastor says, get up in the morning because that's what you're supposed to do at four o'clock in the morning is read your Bible for an hour and you're grumpy. Sometimes I wonder, does Jesus even want to meet with you that morning? <laughs> Come on, meet with Jesus for sure. Meet with him. <laughs> Take the pressure off of you. Be you, that God called you to be. I'm not saying just feel good about you because of who you are. I'm saying you root yourself deep in Christ. What does that mean? He transforms you. He fixes your character. He fixes your thought life. He fixes all the things that he says he wants to take and and renovate who you are, for sure. I'm not saying just be happy and do nothing. I'm saying be holy and do something. Dig deep, roll your roots down deep into him. Amen. Hmm. God's best version of you is what's truly going to truly give him the glory. Now listen, I want to make sure that you know this, that God's best version of you is not always easy. You walking out God's best version of you is not always easy. It's life-giving, but it's not always easy. You walking out God's, God's version of you is not always easy, but it's life-giving. For, for me, I'll tell you this. Um, one of the most life-giving things that I get to do in the course of my week is this. Is on Thursday nights at 7 o'clock, I come here to the church and I do this thing called group link. Right? And group link is really, it's really for anyone who wants to get involved in life groups at all. Come on Thursday nights and I'll get you into a life group. I love it, right? So we can get... 10 people, we can get 30 people. It doesn't matter. But they show up here on a Thursday night as they want to get connected to PSTC. You know what? I'm, I get to be, I'm the one leading that thing. I love it. it. Because I sit down, and you know what happens? I get a chance to process through what they heard from the message, how they're going to apply it to their lives, get them in contact with each other. I connect people with people and people with Jesus. I think it's the most fun. I think everyone else should do it. You all should be doing that with me. I'm telling you, it's amazing. 7 o'clock, Thursday night. I think it's the most fun thing, but here's the thing. I'd be lying to you <laughs> if I told you I'd wake up on Thursday morning and think like, woo I got a meeting tonight. Or Thursday at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, woo-hoo, I got a meeting tonight. Let me tell you this. Doing what God's called you to do is life-giving, but it might not be easy. Now, once I get in there and I walk in the door and the first person I see, immediately something changes in me. I don't know what it is, man, but like life starts to happen. And I feel like this is what I'm created for. You'd think I'd learned that from the week before. 
See, being a mommy, raising kids, it might be life-giving, but it ain't easy. Being a Boeing employee, going to work, working 60 hours a week or whatever it is you put in, trying to live your godly character in front of a bunch of people, it might be life-giving. <laughs> it's not easy. Showing up and doing your work and doing the things that God's created you to do and you to be, it might be life-giving, but it might not be easy. How do I know that? Because the devil hates you. And he wants to make you feel like everything you're supposed to be doing is not what you're supposed to be doing. And he twists and contorts and he lies and he deceives and all of that. But could you imagine if you were to take long enough to say, God, who do you say that I am? And let him define it. And realize that life's not supposed to be super easy. Life's giving, but not necessarily easy. And you watch God begin to fulfill and give his plan to you. Let me tell you a story about a king in the Bible. This is a king in the Bible who, who did good things. I think he was a really good king. But something happened in the middle of his life that caused him to move from being a good king to becoming the best version of himself. And it transformed people all over the place. Second Chronicles chapter 34. This is kind of a lengthy passage of scripture, so I'll do my best to read it and get through all the names. But um, you, you can follow along if you'd like to. If not, just listen to the story. You can read a little bit later. Second Chronicles 34. Since Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight. He followed the examples of his ancestor David. He didn't turn aside from doing what was right. Hmm. Love that. What, what, is it? what does an eight-year-old king try to pass in the kingdom? You know, first edict, running in the halls. Awesome. You know, candy for dinner. I mean, what does an eight-year-old try to do? Isn't that funny? Like eight-year-old? Come on. Jeez. Some of you are like, I know an eight-year-old. That's a bad idea. <laughs> Verse 3. During the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, so now he's 16, math majors, Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor David. I love this. The word seek comes from this Hebrew word bakash, which means to passionately pursue with all of his heart. It's that feeling you get when you got lost at the fair when you were younger. When you were little, you got lost at the fair and you're just like willy-dilly dancing off with your cotton candy and you turn around and you're like, where's mom? And you have that freak out moment and you're just like, I gotta find her. You start running around and crazy. You, you, you know what you start to do? You start to seek your mom. <laughs> you start to bakash. It says the 16-year-old kid started to bakash after the Lord, like his ancestor David. Hmm. What makes a 16-year-old do that? <laughs> What gets a 16-year-old person to decide that life's not all about me? And starts to really want to pursue the heart of God. Well, let's look and see. Certainly, I'll tell you this. What makes a 16-year-old do this? Well, first of all, in Josiah's life, it wasn't his dad. I can tell you that. Josiah's dad's name was Ammon. Ammon was kind of a, well, in the Hebrew, Ammon was a turd. Sorry. Second Chronicles 33, 21 says this, Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for two years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, and just as his father Manasseh had done. Well, he certainly didn't learn how to seek God from his dad. He didn't learn how to seek God from his grandfather Manasseh either. Listen to this. Second Chronicles 33, 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did also what was evil in the Lord's sight. Hmm. It's interesting because this, this kid was raised somehow in, in the kingdom, learning how to follow at 16 years old, how to run passionately after God. What happened? Who told him? What, what, what can't, you know, I got a funny feeling is that there was someone somewhere in the palace, somehow, 
whether it was a great-grandmother, whether it was something happened in Josiah's life that caused him at 16. You know what I think it was? That there was somebody who was living out (laughs) the best version of themselves in the kingdom. And Josiah watched. He said, I want that. Because that is horrible. This is what I want. I mean, Manasseh, his grandfather, the Bible said there was so much bloodshed of innocent blood in the kingdom that you could see blood from one end of the kingdom to the other. It was horrible. He killed his own son. He he sacrificed his own son, his firstborn son, to the false god Molech. I mean, it was horrible what he did. And then his grandson, this is Josiah, shows up as his passionate pursuit for God. Because I think he saw something somewhere from somebody. And what this side of heaven, we won't know what happened. All we know is that something happened that triggered him to become this person who saw after God with all of his heart. Hmm. Josiah, verse 14, or verse 4 rather. It says, He saw, Josiah saw to it that the altars of the images of Baal and their incense altars were torn down. He also made sure that the Asherah poles, the carved idols, and the cast images were smashed and scattered over the graves of those who sacrificed to them. Then he burned the bones of the pagan priests on their own altars. So he purified Judah and Jerusalem. He did the same thing in the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, even in Naphtali. He destroyed the pagan altars and the Asherah poles, and he crushed the idols into dust. He cut down the incense altars throughout the land of Israel, and then he returned to Jerusalem. So this guy, Josiah, decides to tear down the walls to, to, to burn the bones of these false, gross gods or, or priests on the altars of their own selves. I mean, Josiah just wants a clean house. Something happened and righteousness rose up within him. We'll go down to verse 9. It says, Then he gave Hilkiah, the high priest, the money that had been collected by the Levites to serve as gatekeepers in the temple of God. The gifts, he, the gifts brought by the people, I'm sorry, the gifts were brought by people from Manasseh, Ephraim, and from the remnant of Israel as well as from Judah, Benjamin, Judah, Benjamin, and the people of Jerusalem. He entrusted the money to him, to the, to the men assigned to supervise the restoration of the Lord's temple. Then he paid the workers to do the work and the renovation. Down to verse 14. Hilkiah, the high priest, was recording the money collected at the Lord's temple. He found the book of the law of the Lord as it had been given through Moses. Verse 15. Hilkiah said to Shaphan, the court secretary, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. Then Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan. Shaphan took the scroll to the king and reported, Your officials are doing everything that you assigned them to do. The money that was collected at the temple of the Lord has been given to the supervisors and the workmen. Shaphan also said to the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me this scroll. So Shaphan read it to the king. When the king heard what was written in the scroll, was written in the law, he tore his clothes in despair. Then he gave these orders to Hilkiah, Eliakim, Shaphan, uh, Achor, the son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the court secretary, and uh, Ahaziah, the king's personal advisor. Go to the temple and speak to the Lord for me and for all the remnant of Israel and Judah. Ask him, ask him if, about the words of this scroll that have been found. The Lord's anger has burned out against us because we and our ancestors have not obeyed the word of the Lord. We have, been doing what the, we have not been doing what the scroll says we must do. Something happened. Josiah was like living out a righteous life. Josiah, this 26-year-old guy by now, has been cleaning house. He had been straightening up, tearing down the Asherah poles, burning the the false priest's bones on their altars. I mean, he was just like cleaning house because he wanted to clean up for all this stuff, right? But something happened to Josiah from being a good guy 
to becoming the best version of himself. Because when we read the rest of the stories of Josiah, man, he went crazy. He, he cleaned house even more. Something happened in Josiah's life. Now, it says that he found the book of the law, that Shaphan came and read the book of the law to him. We don't know exactly what the book of the law they're referring to. We think it was the book of Deuteronomy, right? He could have read the book of Deuteronomy to him. Now, remember, the reason they found the book of the law was because the temple had been ransacked because his grandfather and his dad had just kind of let it run into disrepair. So that's when Josiah says, hey, let's go clean up the church, right? So he's cleaning up the church, and while they're there, they basically find the Bible, they're pulling it out, and as they're opening up the Bible, they're like, Book of Deuteronomy. They start to read it. They start to read about the Ten Commandments. They start to read about the judgments of God. They start to read about the blessings and cursings of walking with God. I don't know, but I got a funny feeling that there might have been something more that they found. Now, in the temple, there was also the books of the kings, the Bible says. There were um, the annals of the kings. You can read it in your Bible as you read it. Usually it's in 1 Kings or 2 Kings. It's basically the record of the kings of Israel. I just wonder, just for fun, I just wonder, and I don't know if this is the actual way it happened, but I got a funny, funny feeling that Josiah may have actually bumped into the book of 1 Kings while he was reading the book of the law. Why do I say that? Here's why. Josiah went from being a good guy to becoming the best version of himself because I think he read something in 1 Kings that shook him. Get this, 1 Kings. You know what 1 Kings was written 309 years before this. Everyone say 309 years. How many of you have friends that lived 309 years ago, right? Many of you know, right? 309 years before this moment, the book of 1 Kings was written. A prophecy was written. This is what it said. This is what I think Josiah heard read to him that day, my opinion. 1 Kings 13, 1 and 2. 309 years before this moment says this. At the Lord's command, a man of God from Judah went to Bethel. He arrived there just as Jeroboam was approaching the altar to offer a sacrifice. Verse 2. Then the Lord, then at the Lord's command, he shouted, Altar, O altar. This is what the Lord says. A child named Josiah will be born into the dynasty of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests from the pagan shrines who come here and burn incense, and human bones will be burned upon you, altar. 300 years before this moment, this was prophesied to happen. I think what happened, in my opinion, was that Josiah was sitting back listening to Shaphan read Deuteronomy, and he starts to think, like, we're not doing what God told us to do. I got a funny feeling that Shaphan said, oh, by the way, look at this. You're in the Bible. You're in the Bible. And it changed him from being a good guy to become the best version of himself. You might say, well, if that happened to me, I'd change too. I mean, if I saw me written in the Bible, then I'll tell you, it would change me. Because if I saw God write something about me, I would be different too. You are in the Bible. He did write about you. I want to spend the next four weeks talking to you about what he says about you in the Bible. You may not even know it. you're in the Bible. But God has words for you, just like he had for Josiah. Specific words, accurate words, directive words, corrective words, prophetic words for you. Could you imagine if your identity was written down in Scripture and God said, to my remnant, to my children, this is what I say. Could you imagine if he's talking about you? And he say, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. 
He said things to you like, there is no weapon formed against you that will ever prosper. You are my son and daughter of the Most High God. Could you imagine if you actually believed the things that the Bible says about you? Now I'm telling you, buckle up this next week and weeks to come. I'm telling you, I want to unpack what the Bible says about you. Because I'm convinced that when you figure out what God says about you, you'll go from being a good guy to being filled with his Holy Spirit, transformed because you root yourself deep into his love, and becoming the best version of yourself that God intended you to be. Not because you tried harder. Fruit doesn't grow because the tree tries to grow fruit. Fruit grows because it roots itself deeper. The challenge for you over this next several weeks is to grow your roots deeper. In what? In him. The banks of the river of life, roots growing deeper. So when the winds come, it doesn't knock you over kind of deeper. So this morning, here's what I want to do. As we begin this journey, I think before we can actually receive what God says about us, I think before we can actually take in what he's been saying about us, I think what we have to do is we got to get rid of some things. Because we're only, you're, you're, you can't keep on taking stuff in and not give something out, right? God made you to be something that flowed through. Remember the story last week I told you on Easter about the woman at the well? I said she came to the well, right? And Jesus showed up and said, hey, first thing he says to her, doesn't say, hi, ma'am, my name is Jesus. He comes up to her and just says, give me a drink. We unpacked that last week a little bit to say this. Jesus looked at her and said, give me your cup. Give me your trial. Give me your struggle. Give me your thing and do it, and I'll, I'll drink it. And so we saw in that book, we saw in that story that Jesus drank her trial. He drank her struggle. We know what happened. It made room for her to receive the life-giving water he said he was going to give her. I think for you and I today, we have to make room in our lives for him to come and redefine who it is that we are. What do we do? I think we need to repent. I think we need to define what it is that God says that we've been, listen, that, that we've been listening to that's not what God says. We, we need to repent for, yeah, I say repent. Someone else has been telling you who you're supposed to be and you've been listening. Whose problem is that? It's not them, it's yours. Because people are gonna be crazy and tell you crazy things. The truth is we get to choose what we listen to. So this morning, I wanna take just a minute and ask Jesus to help us. Can we do that? Let's pray. God, this morning we come and we thank you for who you said that we are. Lord, I know that anytime we come to acknowledge who you said that we are, we're always gonna be bumping up against the voices that tell us who they think we are. And Father, this morning, I know that as we sit quietly before you, we're running headlong into a lot of that voice, a lot of that, a lot of that mess of what they tell us or it tells us we're supposed to be. Some of you have been hearing that voice for a long time, most of your life. You've been listening to the voices from your parents that have been telling you you'll never be enough. You'll never, you'll never have enough education. You'll never have enough money. You'll never have enough this or do enough that. And you're always feeling like you're never gonna be. And right now, if that's you this morning, I want you to say, Jesus, will you forgive me for listening to that and taking it in? Just forgive me for hanging on to that lie. Maybe it's been you that has been the one who's been seeking so passionately after your career and you've been trying to drive and drive and drive to get your career because somebody somewhere told you that people of value have career and they have this and they have this and they have this and you've been listening to it long and hard and you're just exhausted. This morning I want you to just say, Jesus, will you forgive me for listening to 
the imbalance of that truth. I need a career for sure, but the imbalance of it's told me my full identity is going to come from what I do, not who I am. Maybe this morning you've been listening to all sorts of stuff. It's from parents, grandparents, from friends, from pastors. Pastors who have thrown guilt upon you, saying that you're not enough because you're not doing enough spiritual activity. All of that, you just come and say, Jesus, will you forgive me for listening to that and taking it in as if it's my responsibility to absorb it. Jesus, just forgive me for that. Go ahead, Jesus, help me. Let me walk this thing through so that I can make room in my life for you to pour your life into me, to receive what you say of me, to embrace the truth that you have described for me in your word. Jesus, just forgive me. You're so good, God. Just quietly before the Lord right now, just let the Lord bring things to your mind. Maybe, maybe he's bringing stuff to your mind. And as he does, I want you to just say, Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me for listening to that lie. Forgive me for hanging on to that imbalance of a truth. Go ahead, just let him bring it to your mind's eye. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a, a method or a way that you thought you have to live. Say, Jesus, will you forgive me this morning for that? For believing that lie. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, we say amen. Amen. It's so important.